I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series, Full Swing. People think golf's a gentleman's sport, but it's competition at the end of the day. I'm not there to come in second. I'm not there just to participate. They want to step on my throat, I want to step on theirs. Today, we're talking to executive producer Paul Martin. Money fame, legacy, all are constantly on the line for the professional golfers on the PGA Tour. But navigating the personal and professional hazards off the course are just as challenging. Whether your best friends trying to outdo each other in the rankings, a veteran whose time on the tour is growing short, or an up-and-comer who's one victory away from leaving the middle of the pack, legends rise and fall every weekend. Then, an existential threat to the PGA itself, a controversial new golf league siphoning players with the lure of a giant paycheck. Full Swing gives viewers a chance to get to know the players through their wins and losses and witness what it takes to compete at the highest level in men's professional golf. These guys are here to win. That's what they want to do, but it is so hard to win on the PGA Tour. And I'm joined now by executive producer, Paul Martin. Paul, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So before we talk about Full Swing, I want to talk about the many sports-related series that you've helped produce. They include Breakpoint, which was awesome, and Formula One, which everybody loves, The Drive to Survive. These are all unique ways of capturing sports and athletes. And I'm wondering how your vision developed. I mean, I think, listen, I think firstly, Myself and, and James that I run Box to Box with, we're, we're massive sports fans. And, you know, as a as a consumer, a mass consumer of sport, I'm always fascinated by the story you don't see. And I think that, you know, I, I, I've been around sport enough to know that, you know, what you see on a Saturday or a Sunday or, a you know, a, a Wednesday night you know, on a racetrack or on a tennis court or a golf course or basketball court is only ever the tip of the iceberg of what's really going on in, in these worlds and in these stories. And, you know, I think that it was it just really all these shows are just fueled by our desire to really get under the skin of, you know, what it's all about in those worlds, you know, because, you know, they're superheroes. They can do things that ordinary people can't, which is why they're elite athletes. And it's why they're, they're, they're right at the top of you know, what they do. And, and I'm just fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by the process. I'm fascinated by the the mental side of, of all those sports and, and the sacrifice and, and, and what they all put themselves through because they all make it look so easy. And it's not, you know, because if it was easy, we'd all do it. You know, one of the things I love about your series, and I think Formula One is a great example of this, is that you don't have to have watched or be a fan of the sport to like really love the documentary. I'm wondering what your pitch meeting was for that, because I think that series was kind of a proof of concept for this kind of sports documentary, right? Yeah. I mean, honestly, there was, there was never any real, real pitch to it. We were, we were sort of making it before we even had time to think about 
what it was. You know, it, it came about Formula One had, had approached, you know, Netflix and, and Netflix, you know, wanted to do something in that space. And, and when we came on board as producers, you know, it was really like, hey, we want 10 episodes of this, whatever this is. You guys go and figure it out. And we went on a couple of kind of reccees for kind of drive to survive just to get our head around the sport a little bit. But then suddenly we we were dropped into kind of Melbourne, Australia, and suddenly we were making the show. We hadn't really thought a lot about what it could be and, and the best version of it. And suddenly we were in it, we were making it. And, and that show just then kind of developed in front of our eyes. And, and as we went to more races and, and as we got to know the characters more, it kind of became apparent what that show could be. But yeah, there was, you know, subsequent shows have been easier because there is that, you know, there's a slight blueprint or at least there's a there's an end product that people can kind of reference and understand. But yeah, Drive to Survive, you know, I, I was saying this to someone the other day that I give the Formula One teams, the drivers and the team principals, you know, a lot of kudos because they were sort of going in blind as we were and they didn't really know what they were signing up for in, in that first season. And um, luckily we're still here and, and we're still making that show. But yeah, there, there, there genuinely wasn't a, there wasn't a master, much of a master plan or a vision going into that. I mean, one thing that the these three sports of documentaries I've watched of yours have in common, racing, tennis, golf, of course, racing does have teams, but it does, it's kind of an individual sport in terms of the fact that only one person can win a race. And of course, tennis and golf are pure individual sports. It's very high stakes every single time there's a competition. And I'm wondering, like a lot of that drama comes from the stakes. Do you find that most of the drama comes from the competition that these athletes have with other athletes or from the turmoil they have within themselves when the stakes are that high every single time they're competing? I think both. I think I think the biggest challenge that athletes probably have is the battle with themselves and, and that battle to believe that they can go and do that thing that, that they're being paid to. I mean, I think if you, in full swing, you know, the Brooks Kepka episode is is amazing. If there's a guy who four or five years has been Superman and suddenly finds himself, he's Clark Kent and he, he doesn't know what to do. He, he's never been in that position before. And, and that's all internal. That's, you know, that's clearly a battle that he's kind of waging in his own mind and, and with himself of how do I get back to being that guy? I feel like I'm good enough where I should be winning multiple times a year, and I'm not doing that right now. I've had these question marks for like the last year and a half. Is it gonna be the same golfer? Am I ever gonna be the same? And I still don't know where I'm at. I think fundamentally, and what makes these shows so interesting is that kind of internal battle that these kind of athletes or drivers or, you know, golfers kind of have. And, and I think that if they don't believe it, then they're never going to be able to go out there and, and kind of show it. And I think it all starts there of, you know, many years ago, I made a film about Cristiano Ronaldo. And I remember Ronaldo saying to us that, you know, he didn't, he didn't care what other people thought of him and whether Messi was a better player than him. He was like, when I walk out on that pitch, I have to believe that I'm the best player in the world. And I think mm. it's the same with all these kind of athletes. If you, you know, if you don't believe you're the best in the world, then you're not going to be the best in the world. That was a very intimate episode. And when you're talking to these athletes about appearing in these series, do you have to have a conversation with them that's like, this is going to be 
really elevated, really intimate. It's not going to be like reality television like the Kardashians. Like we're really going to try to tell your real story here. Yeah, I mean, uh, part of the the stock pitch <laughs> that I sort of give, you know, a lot now is that we're not trying to make the Kardashians. We produce with a very small P on these shows. You know, we're not asking, we're not asking anyone to really do anything that they wouldn't be doing anyway. And I think, you know, I think with Brooks, it's like, how could you produce that? You know, you can see that that's all coming from him. And, you know, very early, actually very early on in the relationship with Brooks, it was just a sign that he was clearly struggling to come to terms with injuries and that he wasn't win winning as many tournaments and he couldn't quite get his head around why. But from a very early, you know, almost from the first interview, that was starting to come out of him. And I think... You know, in some ways, these shows can, can be kind of cathartic. You know, they can be a way in which the athletes or the drivers express themselves in a way that they never would. You know, Brooks would have never have gone in front of the golf kind of press after a tournament and spoken like that. You know, it was only the fact that we'd, we'd spent a lot of time with him, we'd got to know him, that, you know, he felt comfortable sharing some of those feelings and, and emotions. So I knew I was really in for a treat as a golf fan when right at the beginning of Full Swing, I got dropped onto a jet with Justin Thomas and Jordan Spieth. Obviously, they are uh, childhood friends who happen to now be both top players on the PGA Tour. So when I was watching Breakpoint, your tennis documentary, we did see a little scene there with some tension between a romantic couple when one is winning and one is losing. And I'm wondering, with these two players, you spent some time with them and we sort of see them switch roles on the PGA Tour. Is there tension between them? Because it was kind of hard to tell. They, they're very supportive of one another, but it's hard to imagine that there isn't some sort of underlying competitive yeah, I think, tension. I think they were pretty honest about it. You know, Justin, you know, was very honest about when Jordan was enjoying his kind of golden period. And, and you know, he looked at him and thought, well, why him? Even though he's my best friend, why is he getting it? Why, why is it not me? And, you know, and I think Jordan the same is like, you know, at the end where when Justin wins the PGA, Jordan's gone home, you know, he's he's angry at himself and he's not that he doesn't want to see his friend kind of win it, but he doesn't really want to see his friend win it, you know. It's, <laughs> you know, so I think they, they are. And, and I'm always surprised when people are surprised that elite athletes are really competitive. Yeah. You know, that they really don't want to lose. They really don't want other people to win. And you're like, well that's kind of what's got them there, you know, th right. because you guarantee that their whole lives, these guys have been in whatever, you know, at, at high school, at college or wherever, they've been the best at what they do. And that's what kind of gets them there. So yeah, they're pretty honest in the show about their feelings for each other and that, Justin's like, I, I hope I beat Jordan at every tournament for the rest of my life. Yeah. And you really did capture the exact moment in their careers where Justin did surpass Jordan Spieth on the tour, which, you know, for a long time, Jordan Spieth was so dominant. And now Justin Thomas has been a really dominant player in the last couple of years. Um, I did love the scene in which JT and Jordan are playing rounds of golf as buddies just for fun. Um, they're trash talking, they're betting. Um, in other words, they're just playing golf the way the rest of us play. Sucks. Come on, Justin. Oh, no. You go in the water? It went in. We both want to push each other. It's inspiring. Hello. A little bit of kind of fire. Damn it! Shut up. Fuck you, Justin. I want to end up having more wins than he does. Wow! This is meow. So 
These are people who have to play golf for a living. I mean, it's fun to watch players who play a sport for a living also play for fun. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's amazing. I mean, and I think golf sort of gives them that luxury. You know, Formula One drivers, apart from a kind of a race weekend, they don't get to go in Formula One cars and play <laughs> against their mates, you know, in and around, you know, the, their hometown. You know, golf, they have that luxury of like, you know, these guys play so much golf that you think the last thing they would want to do is play golf for fun. But they love it. And, you know, and I think that it's great to see them in that environment. And I think when we got into making this show and and people told me that, hey, there's this town in Florida, Jupiter, and pretty much every golfer lives there. And when they're at home, you can walk to a club and you'll see Rory McIlroy playing a cash game against, you know, Justin Thomas and, and Tiger Woods might drop by. And so sometimes they go to Michael Jordan's golf course and play at Michael Jordan's golf course. And you're like, what? This is like some ridiculous kind of reality show. Like, it's not, <laughs> that, that town doesn't exist. And But sure enough, there's Jupiter, Florida that just, you know, it's golf and, and the PGA Central. It was just blew my mind when, when I found out about that place. Wait till you find out about Ocala, where all the airplane and horse people live. It's a whole other yeah. section of Florida. You do one thing that's really interesting. At the end of the tournaments, you don't just show where the athlete finished in the standing. You show the financial stakes of how much money they won. Um, why do you think that context was important to show the viewers? I think it was. I think it was a couple of reasons. Um, it, it certainly wasn't to sort of rub people's noses in that you know how much money that that these guys earn. It, it, you know, for me, there's a scene where I think where Mito Pereira has just blown the kind of the, the PGA. And we flash up that he's won, I don't even know what it is, $400,000, right? Which for me, if I win $400 at anything, I'm probably, you know, swirling my top around my head, celebrating, like, whatever. He's crying like a baby because he's just, you know, he's just lost the tournament. You know, I think that it, in some ways it was actually an effort to show that the money really doesn't matter to these guys, honestly, because... Sure, they play for a hell of a lot of money, but they don't even they don't even really see the dollar signs at the end of it. You know, they're all about, you know, the, the win in the tournament. And I think that that sort of just highlights that, look, even though these guys are, are earning huge amounts of money for finishing 25th in a in a tournament. It's still about something bigger than just the money. It's still about the glory, the legacy, all that kind of stuff. So I think that that's probably why we kind of, we, we'd left that in there. And also, you know, because you can be the 25th best golfer at a tournament and still earn mouthwatering amounts of money. You know, I think yeah. that people would be surprised at the lifestyle that these guys have. And I think if we hadn't, you know, if we hadn't shown how they kind of accumulate money, you'd be like, well, how does Ian Poulter fly around in the private jet? Like, yeah. how does these guys do it? You know, and I think it's just because there's so much money in, in the PGA Tour. That's right. And they have advertisements all over their shirts and their hats and their clubs. It's it's really a high, high money sport. And I loved that you showed that aspect of it. So if there's a breakout star from the series for me, it's Joel Damon. All the best players, they're way better than I am. And I'll never be a top 10 player in the world and I'll never win majors. Joel can compete with the best players in the world because truthfully he is one of the best players in the world. Not a huge name in golf. Uh, at the time you were filming around 70th in the world, he barely qualifies for the U.S. Open. 
How did you get the feeling that this would be a guy to follow? I think we just we just wanted that kind of everyman kind of character in it. And and Joel, I think, it had a bit of a following kind of online as being that joker, as being that. And then when, when we sat down, when I, I sat down and I interviewed him at Tory Pines, I think, right at the beginning of the process. And, and he comes in and he does that thing of like... It's not like I don't try and I don't practice, but someone's got to be the 70th best golfer in the world. Might as well be me. What interested me was that you speak to him and you're like, he is fine with it, but he's better than that. And he would love to show the world he's kind of better than that as well. I think it, in some ways it's sort of this character that he's constructed around himself as almost a security blanket of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, there's, there's no expectation on me because I have no expectation on myself. And, and do you know what? I'm, don't worry about me. I'm fine with it. And what I loved about, you know, his run in kind of the U S open was, you know, that, that Gino really has to be the one to persuade him to kind of stand up and really show the world what he can do. And, you know, and, and for a couple of rounds, he's, he's leading the kind of the US Open. And, and really, that's the level that Joel should be at. He's good enough. He's good enough to be at that level. And I think that that episode is about, you know, Joel the Joker and, and everything about that. But there's a better player in there than he's shown the world so far. And, and I hope that this episode... You know, he'll see it and, and go on and do better things and, and get more top five finishes and, and, you know, hopefully win some tournaments as well. So another golfer that we really root for, at least I did, uh, is Matt Fitzpatrick. He had never won a major when you start his story. He's also in that category of player, um, you know, who could be great, but can he prove it, you know? But again, that points to what's so strange about golf, that you can be 23rd in the world and still be seen as an underdog, right? Yeah, and I think Matt, you know, you see it in, in the episode, you know, we, we tried to draw that parallel with, you know, physically and and where he was from, you know, he's from Sheffield, which, you know, you see him stood next to Dustin Johnson or Bryson DeChambeau or, or you know, Brooks Kepka, and you're like, there's no way this guy can compete against those. You know, he's physically not in the same league and he's... Uh, he works like crazy and he just lives and breathes golf and, and believes in himself. And we just had a feeling for, again, from the first interview we did with kind of Matt, he, he sort of came in and he was very different from some of the characters we had. We, he was just someone that we felt was going to have a big moment through the year. And I was at Boston. I was there when he won the US Open. And it, it was just incredible. It was incredible to see it. <laughs> the shot that he hit on 18 out of that bunker was my heart was in my mouth that you know the emotion that that people felt there was real and and so when we came to when we came to edit that episode we we really really wanted to land the emotion of it because it having been there it genuinely was there you know people were crying people were hugging his mum and dad were were there some of his childhood friends were there you know his brother was there it it was incredible to be there and we wanted to do justice to that we didn't want to just land it as like oh great he's kind of won a major we wanted to show like what it really meant to him his family his friends and you know I've got people that been texting me saying they they cried like a baby at that episode which is you know, which is crazy, you know, to, to be able to make people cry watching a show about golf is, um, is pretty incredible.
So if you've ever been to uh, any kind of sports game in Boston, a Red Sox game, a Celtics game, a Patriots game, uh, you might know that Boston sports fans have a reputation for being really rough on opponents. And we heard them taunt Matt as if he were on a visiting team. You captured that audio and you included it. And I'm wondering if you heard that kind of trash talk throughout the PGA Tour or was it more prevalent in Boston? I think it was definitely more prevalent in Boston on that day, you know, and I think that, you know, I, I, I walked the last 18 holes with Matt that day and I can tell you <laughs> the abuse was probably 10 times worse than the abuse is in the show. You know, from the moment it became a sort of a head-to-head between him and Will. Will was obviously, you know, American and he doesn't look like your average golfer. So in some ways he was, you know, for them, he was kind of an easy target, but he never flinched once. You know, there was, there was a moment, I think, on 16 or 17 and play had kind of been stopped and it, it stopped for quite a significant amount of time and he was just stood on the tee and the crowd just were relentless. They just didn't stop. And I remember just looking at him and, and obviously his mum and dad can hear it, brother can hear it, everyone can hear. And Matt just didn't flinch once. He didn't acknowledge it. He didn't. He just was like ice in his veins. It was extraordinary. And so when it came to kind of edit it, editing it, we again, we just wanted to capture some of that flavour of what he'd been up against that day because, you know, it was it was pretty full on. So there are two looming forces casting long shadows over this particular season in golf. And um, one of them is Tiger Woods. The other one is Live Golf. Let's start with Tiger. Um, He's not terribly competitive, but everybody's watching him after his catastrophic car accident in 2021. But he has returned to golf after nearly losing his leg, nearly dying. How was his presence felt among the golfers that you followed? I, I mean, for that generation, for the for the generation of golfers now, golf begins and ends with Tiger. They they all grew up watching him. They all grew up wanting to be him. The fact that there's so much money in golf is down to Tiger. The fact that you know there's a big audience for golf is is down to Tiger. And I think you know what what really blew me away is when when we did the first round of interviews. Uh, on this show and I think Chad and, and myself and Chad Mum who's who's the other executive producer on it we went to the Bahamas and, and we interviewed probably about 20 golfers over two or three day period and just you know sort of just getting to know them getting to know a bit about where they come from and you know who they are and, and sort of part of that you know we're like well you know who's your hero as, as you were growing up and every single one of them without exception said tiger and that Mm. kind of blew me away you don't get that in other sports you don't get one you know in tennis it probably be well might have been rafa might have been roger maybe a bit of agassi maybe sampras maybe in golf every single one of them said tiger and it was extraordinary and and the regard in which they all hold him is just unbelievable and so to have him suddenly come back to suddenly compete you know, was just incredible to kind of watch, you know, even as, like you said, he wasn't particularly competitive. He wasn't necessarily troubling the, the the kind of the leaders, but just to have him back in this world was just extraordinary because they're all living in Tiger's world. They're all living in the world that he created. 
You know, I do wonder about Tony Finau and Colin Morikawa because obviously they're huge admirers of Tiger, but obviously in a sport that is predominantly white still, I always wonder for players of color whether or not, you know, it's kind of reductive for everybody to compare them to Tiger Woods over and over and over again, like as if their legacy is forged by being compared to Tiger in a way that white players aren't necessarily asked the same question. You know what I mean? A hundred percent. I think, you know, I think that's a, that's a bigger, <laughs> that's a bigger subject to, to kind of examine. And I think that, you know, it doesn't golf up until Tiger didn't have the greatest history you know, in terms of letting minorities on courses and, and all that stuff. And it it took someone with with tiger skin colour to be so much better than everyone else to, to even be accepted. That was the bar where it took this guy to come and just dominate the world for them to suddenly go like, well, maybe we will open the doors to kind of minorities. And and again, that speaks to the power of of Tiger, you know. And I think I think you're right. I think it's it's not fair to compare, you know, it's not fair to compare anyone to Tiger. I think there was a there was an extraordinary stat I saw last week after kind of Genesis that if you took a two year period of Tiger's career where he won 17 tournaments and four majors, those two years would pretty much put him ahead of everyone kind of playing the game. More majors than, you know, than Rory, than just, you know, Justin, than, than Jordan, you know, more tournaments than anyone else. It's extraordinary. You know, a two-year period would, pro- would probably have made him the best golfer of all time. And he did it for 20 years. And I think that no one's ever going to come close to the impact that he had for for the reasons of he was so much better and and what he did for four people like Tony and Colin and 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 things like that. So I think that the guy is just beyond comparison. Obviously, the other big presence that's looming over the season uh, and still is uh, in your documentary is Live Golf, the new competitor to the PGA. Players are being offered huge money just to play, but the league is financed by the Saudis who have this terrible record on human rights. And what's interesting about what you show us is that this is a real opportunity for someone like Ian Poulter, who's no longer winning money on the PGA tournament and he has, you know, this lifestyle and this family that he's still trying to support. You're there for five days, packing your bags and leaving without getting a check. So working for free doesn't doesn't float my boat. I'm not traveling to the US Open because I'm not in. I'm not in the top sixty of the world rankings. I'm gonna be here at home. Um with my family, and there is the first live event down the road. Him framing it as a business decision and a monetary decision to go to live contrasted with someone like Dustin Johnson's decision to go to live. For me, it was playing less, making more money. Pretty simple. Someone offered anyone a job, doing the same thing they're already doing, but less time at the office, and they're gonna pay them more pretty sure you're going to take it. And something's wrong with you if you didn't. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because it seems less simple 
when you look at Dustin Johnson then and looking at Ian Poulter, I mean, these are two very different players making this kind of decision, right? Yeah, and I think listen, I think that it just comes down to the fact that everyone's different and everyone has a slightly different, you know, everyone has a slightly different compass on things. And I think that, you know, I think Dustin was, you know, was very open about the reasons that he was going and he didn't care what people thought. You know, he genuinely believed in in the reasons that he thought. You know, Ian probably had a harder time. You know, there, there was, he was at a slightly different stage of his career. He really wanted to be the captain of the, of the Ryder Cup team and, and he knew that if he took the kind of the money from Liv that his chances of doing that were, were, were probably going to kind of vanish. And so I think it probably was a harder decision for Ian than it was for Dustin, you know. And the same for Brooks. I think for Brooks, there was a different set of kind of metrics to, to kind of weigh up. The journey you've been told about Saudi Arabia is on. How is that journey helping the women oppressed in Saudi Arabia, the migrant groups, their rights violated, the LGBTQ individuals who were criminalised, the families of the 81 men who were executed in March, and those being bombed in Yemen? It's a really hard question to answer. You know, we're just we're just here to focus on the golf. I'm not here to kind of defend live golf or or, or even attack live golf. I just think that we took the view that we were going to cover the we were going to cover that through the eyes of the, the players that we were kind of following, and we weren't necessarily going to editorialize about the rights and the wrongs of it. We just wanted to show that you know it created dilemmas for these players where they had a decision of do I stay or do I go. And if I st- if I go, there's a hell of a lot of money. But if I stay, there's legacy and and there's all that. But for the reasons why they went, are all completely, you know, unique to them because everyone's different and everyone has different. You know, I don't know enough about Dustin's personal circumstances or Ian's personal to to really know, you know, why they ultimately made that decision. But we. You know, we were lucky enough to to see it and to see that everyone handled it in a very different way. Hmm. So you did get this incredible access to PGA events. Um, did you try to get access to the live event that we sort of see happen while you were filming? Yeah, so we filmed at Centurion. We filmed mm-hmm. it at, the, at the first live event because, again, you know, there was a number of our cast were were involved in it. And, and so, yeah, we went and we filmed it at the live event and... I think our partnership was always with the PGA on this show, but I think even the PGA understood that we had to cover, you know, what was going on in, in a meaningful way. And, and having seen some of our players and some of our cast make the decision to go, then it was really important that we saw them there and we saw them playing in, in those events. And so, you know, it was a pretty easy kind of decision to make to, to go and film, you know, Dustin and Ian playing at kind of Centurion. It's really interesting how many of the top PGA players view live. Some see it as just offensive. Many see it as a competitive threat. And someone needed to step up and, you know, defend the PGA at the same time as pushing for reforms, but it essentially made the PGA a more competitive and appealing place to be. One of those players ends up being Rory McIlroy. Um, what do you think made him the right player at the right time to do this? You know, I think that he just you know, second to kind of Tiger, he he just had become the kind of the figurehead of the PGA. I think he'd, you know, or, or very recently had become a, the official kind of 
you know, sits on the PJ board or I can't remember exactly what it's called, but he, you know, he, he, he was more involved in the politics of it and more involved in, you know, defending the kind of the players and, and all that stuff. So I think when something like this happened, I think he felt a responsibility to kind of stand up and, and speak up in, you know, in defense of, of the tour. It's been contentious at times and I've maybe leaned into that part of it a little too much and made it a little too personal in my mind, but I feel like what some people have done has affected the rest of the profession. So uh, I'm just trying to defend what I think is right. As well as being the kind of the spokesperson for that period, he was he was the number one golfer in the world as well. And, and you know, and, and so became doubly kind of important. And, and that that ability to, to stand up for the PGA, both on the course and off the course, it's pretty amazing. You know, you see him go out and against the backdrop of it, he goes and delivers an amazing, you know, an amazing performance. And I think it's just who Rory is. I think he, when he commits to something and he believes in something, he's going to stand up and, and, and defend it. Well, he is one of my favorite players, personally. I will just say that. It is interesting, though, that the deal he brokered, you know, bigger purses and more favorable schedule, it does acknowledge the appeal of live for players and the, you know, the competition. I'm wondering if you found yourself asking the question, like, what does the future of golf look like? As I'm sure these players are asking themselves all the time. Yeah, it was, listen, you know, we had a, we had a kind of a ringside seat to it. And I think, you know, I'm really, you know, I'm really interested to see how it develops. I mean, and hopefully we get to see it develop in a, in a full swing season two, you know, we'll see. But I think there's, yeah, I think there's, there's a few more twists and turns to come for sure. You know, I have a personal, you know, view of how it may play out, but you know, that doesn't come with any necessarily any sort of intelligence or, or anything like that. But I think that, I think we haven't heard the last of live. I don't think we haven't heard the last of the courtroom battle, the on the course. I think it's going to be fascinating if you get to a situation where there's a live golfer and, you know, and someone like Rory, going down the 18th in, in Augusta to, to win the Masters. I think that would be absolutely box office. And I think it's not beyond the realms of possibility. So I don't think we've heard the last of a lot of the stuff that you see in kind of season one. I'm just curious. I think when people think of golf, they probably have some strong feelings about it. Either I hate golf, never watch golf, or I'm really passionate about golf. I love golf. What are you hoping that people who maybe have never watched golf before will get from your documentary. You know, maybe you have this experience from F1. Yeah. I, I think that just, you know, I'll be honest with you. I wasn't a huge golf fan. I really I didn't necessarily. Yeah. I hadn't, you know, when we started the show, I probably hadn't picked up a golf club in about 15 years. I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't an avid golfer and I was surprised by how much I enjoyed being around golf. I was surprised by how much I enjoyed kind of watching the sport how much respect I had for the golfers, you know, how much more interesting they were. You know, I was surprised by how actually some of them were quite cool. You know, I wasn't expecting that with with golfers, honestly. And and so I hope, you know, I hope that that people that have never thought about golf will see the show and and probably feel the way that, that I felt that come out of it and you'll be like, it's a bit more interesting than I thought it was. And they're a bit more interesting. And there is a bit, there's humour in it and there's heart in it and there's emotion in it. You know, it's not just a bunch of middle-aged white men, you know, walking around the countryside with, with, 
stupid iron clubs or whatever. So yeah, hopefully people will, will you know, will just enjoy golf for, for what it is. Hopefully they'll also see there's a hell of a lot of drama too. Uh, Paul Martin, your series is full swing. I loved watching it. I hope everyone else watches it too and thinks better of golf for it. Thank you so much for talking to me about it. Thanks very much. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Paul Martin. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And make sure to subscribe to the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>